Hey, it's Drex from This Week Health Cyber and Risk Community, and I want to invite you to our next webinar. It's going to focus on what else? Defending health data. I'll be chatting with experts from Rubrik and Microsoft. Register right now at thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. That's all one string, R-U-B-R-I-K webinar, thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. See you online soon. Today on This Week Health. This issue of workforce and depletion of clinicians and maybe even non-clinicians is like, how can technology best be leveraged to minimize the burden on the clinician? How do we continue to do that? Because we have fewer clinicians we have a demoralized and depleted workforce, and yet we have amazing technology. What else can we do? How do we leverage that and smartly so it's not just by a thousand clicks? It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First, who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, it's Newsday, and today we are joined by Mari Sifikis with all things federal, the Hill, what's going on and whatnot, and we're going to do a little back and forth. You're, are you just back from, uh, by the way, welcome back to the show, Mari. Thank you. I always love joining you, Bill. So are you, you're just back from vacation? If you want to call it that, yes. <laughs> if you want to go, we're, we're not going to go into your vacation on the show itself. But it's interesting. I've been talking to people, and there are different kinds of vacations. There's vacations that feel like work, and then there's vacations that feel like vacations. So I remember one time we took our kids to Disney World, and when I came back, I felt like I needed to take a week off from work just to relax after that uh after that event but all right today we're going to jump in jump into a bunch of things questions can go in either direction we're not covering any story specifically but there is a lot of stuff going on in the world right now i want to start with this october 6th interoperability deadline that's uh, looming out there information blocking 21st century cures so where are we at? First of all, talk to me about the things that Chime is doing to help prepare the membership for this October 6th deadline. What have you guys been doing? A lot. A lot of listening to start, but for the past several years, we've actually been in education mode, and I think we continue to be in education mode. I think the challenge, though, is that those two extra years that the government afforded our members to prepare and for the vendors has been gobbled up by, in many cases, the pandemic, not to completely use that as an excuse. They've been working towards this, but it certainly has added a layer of complexity to the situation. And I know that before we started recording, you were mentioning workforce. There's a lot of pieces that go into this. And then last but not least, so just be like a lot of uncertainty around how you comply. That, I don't know if you're hearing that from some of the folks that you're talking to, but that has been more than bubbling up to the surface is just an uncertainty around the, how do, you, how do you meet these deadlines? There's a fair amount of complexity. There's some remaining answers that people are seeking from ONC that has just put a, like a cloud over how compliance is gonna be met for one of the definitional requirements of October 6th, the definition of EHI expands. How do you move from that subset of data, which was USDDI to a more complete set of data? 
how do you push data out of systems that are not EHRs? On and on we go. So that's what we've been hearing as of late. It's interesting. How much of that is falling on the EHR providers and how much of that is falling on the systems themselves, do you think? Well, I'll say this. One of the things that we've been hearing is that there's a misalignment between what the dates that the vendors have to meet things and the dates that the providers have to meet things. And so there's a level of complexity to this situation where you have Medicare, which is the only lever in terms of like the levers the government pulls in terms of compliance. It's really just those who are in the pool of meaningful use now promoting interoperability. You don't have to use your certified EHR until like the last quarter of 2023. Yet technically they're supposed to deliver it right starting January 1st of next year. But there's a whole other subset of providers that don't that never had to meet high tech and didn't get the money for that. So there's like that challenge. How do you execute on that? They're going to have to claim exceptions. And then there's this whole subset of data for those that have been meeting um, meaningful use, promoting interoperability that are not housed in the EHRs. And so the, I mean, I think everyone's feeling it. The vendors are feeling it. I think the providers are feeling it. There's a level of feeling of not readiness that we're, we're, we're hearing about. And so that is a challenge. And we've been talking to the federal government about these issues. People are trying, they're absolutely trying, but I, I think that there's a lot of people who are not ready. And that that'll, those two alignment issues between the vendors and providers is one big issue. Yeah, gosh, at every given phase, you can hear the things and you can almost predict where this is gonna go. So we're getting very close to the deadline. Where are we, July, towards the end of July, the deadline will be right around the corner. But when we were first talking about this, there was there's questions that need to be answered, but there was an awful lot of talk amongst the ranks of, well, a majority of this is going to fall on the HR providers. They're just going to blah, 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 do their thing, and we'll be able to create the mechanisms for uh, secure sharing and to protect the privacy and do all that stuff. And we seem to have buy-in from the EHR providers that they were they were going to do that. And a lot of the systems don't have the wherewithal to do some of the things I'm going to say in a minute. So they almost have to rely on their vendors to come up with a solution to do this. They just don't have a massive staff to do it. And a lot of their investments are already going towards this EHR. If the EHR doesn't do it and do it effectively, they're not going to be able to do it. Some of the larger players, though, realized that they needed data liquidity and a data uh, framework for what was coming next not only with regard to interoperability, but they needed it for research and data sharing uh, across the whole litany of things that they do, uh, especially if they're an academic medical center. And so they started to create this repository of data that was malleable, that could, that could be used. So when you talk about getting data from these other entities, they're already doing that. And they're doing that for research purposes. They're doing that for any number of things. And plugging interoperability or 21st century cures into that is not all that hard. It sounds like in healthcare, we still have this problem of the haves and the have nots, right? So the haves are going to be able to meet this pretty easily. You're probably not hearing from the academic medical center saying, hey, you need to let the federal government know that we're not going to be able to do this. You're hearing probably, my guess is, from the smaller health systems or even, even really small hospital systems saying, I don't even know how we're going to do this. I think there's a lot to be said to what you just articulated, though I will say that I've heard from some of the more sophisticated systems that they still have a lot of outstanding questions. And while I think that they're far more equipped to navigate the compliance landscape, I think it still is challenging. 
and some of that just comes back to some uncertainty with how ONC will interpret things, what are the compliance levers that have not yet been articulated. So, I mean, overall, I think that applies to a lot of things with public policy. Like, they're just better equipped because they have more resources. That's not, like, always the case. But, I mean, again, I have talked to some of the bigger systems, and there's, you know, they'll, they'll be able to thread the needle, but they also, they've also talked to me about some of the challenges that they're having. So, but if they're having challenges, and you know that how that goes, Billy, like, it's a slippery slope down. If the, if the top, you know, folks are articulating issues, then we're going to have a lot of challenges with those who are like say community-based hospitals and small providers absolutely so the october 6th deadline is this when they're actually going to start imposing penalties or is this just the date for compliance it's just a date for compliance because there are no penalties yet for providers there's the only and in fact there's no penalties yet in place for the other three actors which are the vendors the hies hins those three were actually named in the statute and they have penalties up to a million dollars for information blocking. However, the OIG rule is not final for them. So that hasn't been cut free yet. So there's really like, it's a little bit of, you know, uncertainty. Well, there's a lot of uncertainty around compliance. So it's just a, but, but I mean, you could say like, we've having worked in the government for a long time or with the government that they could be retrospective. So hopefully that will be the case, but there could be some retrospective odds, like were you in compliance by October 6th? Right. But then they could also file a complaint, right? To ONC, someone could file a complaint and then they could start investigating, even though there's technically no enforcement mechanism. Yeah. So what kind of resources? I assume you've done some webinars. There's probably on-demand webinars for Chime members for this, and there's probably some cheat sheets and other things that you guys have developed for this as well. Yeah, we actually have an entire website devoted to this for one-stop shopping for providers. It's not even limited to the time membership and bowblockingcenter.org. And I'll give you that website, Bill. That I mean, it's there's a lot of stuff in here, PowerPoints, implementation guides, fact sheets, recorded webinars. I mean, you name it. So we just did a webinar with this is a little bit beyond information blocking, but TEFCA. But we've done we've done a series of webinars. We have a series of web of fact sheets on our website which I can share with you. And we'll probably do, I imagine we'll be doing more the closer we get to this. We're probably also gonna be issuing a survey to our members shortly just to gauge readiness because we're hearing a lot of challenges around that space. Yeah, so so give me the, the URL one more time. Infoblockingcenter.org. Great, infoblockingcenter.org. All right, so people can check that out. A lot of stuff to download there and take a look at. We'll get back to our show in just a minute. We have a couple of webinars coming up, and I don't like webinars. I think they are oversaturated at this point, and I think a lot of them are not all that good. And so that's why I think I'm the perfect person to put together webinars for you. I make sure that we have great topics. I validate them with CIOs. I make sure we have great guests, and I make sure that we actually plan ahead and we actually spend time together before the actual webinar. So it's not just spur of the moment stuff, but we make sure we identify the things that we should talk about in those webinars. And we even collect questions from you ahead of the webinar so that we can make sure to talk about the things that you want to talk about. So let me tell you a little bit about the two webinars we have coming up. There's a global survey that we talked about on the Today Show. A thousand cybersecurity professionals found that 30% plan to change professions within two or more years. And cybersecurity threats are growing. And, you know, quite frankly, we need to make sure that we recruit, ret retain, and optimize our staff so that they can 
be our front line. And so the first webinar we're doing is how's your front line recruit, retain, and optimize your cybersecurity team. And we're going to talk to experts from Christiana Care and Seattle Children's and Semperus about their thoughts on this exit of security professionals and what you can do to stay ahead of that. You can join us August 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern time, and you can register right on our homepage, thisweekhealth.com. On the top right-hand side, you're going to have the two upcoming webinars. You can go ahead and click on those. Again, that is August 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. The next one, we're going to talk about ransomware, but I've seen a lot of different ransomware webinars. I love this one. The topic we came up with is don't pay the ransom. And Rubric is bringing together some great leaders from Thomas Jefferson University and St. Luke's University Health System and, and Rubric themselves. And we're going to discuss solutions around protecting all of your healthcare data, especially as you're moving to the cloud. And specifically, we're also going to talk about Epic Backup in Azure and what Rubric is doing around that. That webinar is going to be on Thursday, August 18th at 1 p.m. You can register for both of them. Just go to our homepage, thisweekhealth.com. Upper right-hand corner, you're going to see both of the graphics for those. Click on the one you want to attend, fill out the form, and we will see you then. Now back to our show. What direction to go with you? We have so many interesting conversations. So we could go privacy, cyber, telehealth. Let's go with privacy. Are we seeing anything in the Capitol right now around privacy? What's being talked about? Yes, and it's been bubbling up to the surface. It seems to have these like fits and starts, but it is a topic du jour. And increasingly, as we try to navigate an increasingly complex landscape around data, and I would argue that the landscape where you have the HIPAA providers, right? So those who have to comply with HIPAA, that ecosystem as contrasted with the one that doesn't have to comply with HIPAA, maybe governed by the FTC, the data that is held by those non-HIPAA covered entities, I think may even have surpassed like say hospitals and health systems. It's getting so large. They have access to so much data. And so there's an increased amount of attention on them in big tech with something to do. How do we protect consumer rights? There was going to be a hearing this week. It's sliding. They're arguing still over trying to iron out some of the differences, like around private right of action, things like along those lines, where there isn't a complete amount of consensus. But hearing on that coming up with energy and commerce, so they have a bill out there. It's bicameral, bipartisan. That's a piece. So I've heard that, and I think this has been in the media that the California delegation has some challenges that they're trying to iron out with respect to the California law, which really kind of set a high bar for privacy and making sure that there aren't significant conflicts, but with whatever moves forward on the national level. But there is there is attention being placed on this and lawmakers are are paying attention. So people who want to tune into this should be looking for, again, that ENC hearing hopefully will be next week. It was supposed to be this week. So the answer is yes in short. The answer is yes in short. So privacy is, so we're talking about Healthcare privacy at this point. So we're talking about that healthcare data and they're worried about big tech having access to that data. You may not know the specifics and I'm just sort of grasping here a little bit because I'm wondering, what are we worried about for big tech? Because we don't have any big tech data breaches. So we're not worried about data breaches for the most part. We have every day we have a breach of a health system. So we're not worried from that perspective. Are we worried that they're literally going to be able to access this information and then utilize it in ways like potentially resell it or potentially utilize it in ways to market to these 
to individuals usually using their private information to, I don't know, to essentially be more effective in the businesses that they are running? There's a lot to that question or statement. Let me just say, I'm sure that big tech is not completely inoculated from breaches. Number one, I think a lot of people would disagree with that. And number two, it's not just big tech, it's little tech also. Uh, So you have, I mean, if you, and I, I challenge anyone listening to your podcast and to you is to go pop open any privacy terms and conditions for an app that you're downloading or on a website and you will find nothing about like huge news fest and like practically like four point font that doesn't make any sense to anyone. It's not written in plain English. So no one would really even understand what they're agreeing to to begin with. So it's trying to pull that apart. Like one thing you should look, for example, and I noticed is the term third party. Third party is like the slush bucket term for like other people and organizations beyond us, you know, that kind of thing. Where's your data going? So you're asking like the data can be hoovered up, right? It's aggregated, which becomes an issue. They put a number on your head in terms of like, oh, you're worthy of this kind of credit, Bill Russell. They have lots of data points on you. It's a far larger issue actually, because they have so much more data and the access now. And whereas healthcare providers and other HIPAA covered entities, they don't, their purview is not like hoovering up data and using it in a way to completely like commoditize it. That is not the primary interest of a healthcare provider. I mean, certainly there's a lot of integration with technology, but they have to meet the HIPAA requirements. And so it's a lot more data that can be used. And a lot of consumers either aren't really sure what they're giving away or they're agreeing to things, or it's done in a way that's so nebulous that no one would even know that they're giving it away or it's been taken. So there's, it's bringing a lot of transparencies to the entire sector of healthcare data, not just to like the HIPAA area, because the HIPAA area is already covered. And hopefully, again, for those CIOs and other providers listening, there'll be some sort of carve out for the HIPAA covered entity. So there's not duplicity, right? We already have to meet privacy and security requirements. We don't want to see like duplicative requirements. So it's, it's bringing more oversight to the areas that do not have oversight today. Yeah. And by the way, I, I agree with you. And I, I'm just, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here, but I agree with you that, that no entity is completely immune to, to a breach. I will say that defining big tech is also an interesting thing too. When I say big tech, it's sort of synonymous with five or six companies, but it also does take into account all these other startups that are bubbling up around there as well. So I, and, and clearly not all of them have the same kind of security architecture and framework in place, but I'm just saying we, we don't see uh, Amazon getting hacked, Google getting hacked and whatever, but we just saw 600 health systems get hacked through a business associate. So that's one aspect of it. That's the only reason I bring that up. But the, the other thing is it's, there's sort of a, when we talk about HIPAA, it's interesting because we talk about privacy, but it's not my data. The health systems, it's their data. And they will say the words that it's the patient's data, but they don't act that way. It's not easy to get all my data. It's not easy to aggregate all my data. And so from that standpoint, I almost have a more complete record from Apple and Apple Health today than I do the providers I've seen. And proof of that is you, you have new companies coming out there from health system providers that are treating my data like it's not my data anyway. So you want to talk about privacy. I mean, you have companies like Truveta that are essentially aggregating millions of records 
and forming a billion dollar company around research and other things. Now they will say for the good of mankind and for research and that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, there was no regard for my privacy or my data. Nobody asked me. I didn't get to review the security measures that they're putting around this or anything to that effect. And to be honest with you, it was a probably a, a checkbox along a very long set of forms that I filled out from the health system that said, can we put your data into an HIE or can we share your data, whatever. And it was amongst a million things when I was in the in need of care that I just checked a box. Not too much better than the innocuous privacy or consent forms we've signed from big tech. There's problems on both sides is essentially what I'm saying. It's not as clear clear cut as it's big tech. I don't necessarily disagree with what you're saying. However, I like to like talk when I talk to members, I like to remind them that the days of your HIM department being open from eight to four, like Monday through Thursday, are over. Like over. So I think we're moving, the train is moving forward, not backwards. So we absolutely have some work to do. I will say though that it is having been in healthcare for a really long time, and I won't say how long, but a long time, but the early days of HIPAA which I was a part of, it was don't share. And so you're basically erasing, you know, decades of muscle memory where it was browbeaten into providers like thou shall not share except for like these limited situations. And the fear too, when you have, again, I think we've all experienced it too. Sometimes I don't think it's so much nefarious or like ill-intended as you've got someone at the registration desk. What do you think that they're a HIPAA expert? Oh my gosh, no, they're not. And you're trying to ask them to do something subtle. Like, I'll give you a personal example. I don't want this record going to this provider. They can't figure out how to do this in the HR. They're just like the front office person. They try for like 15 minutes and then they give up and then you give up. So is that nefarious? No, it's not nefarious. It's just that trying to navigate how you do that inside of an HR may not be as straightforward. And I'm sure we could sit here and pick apart like a few providers who did the wrong thing. But it's, it's there's we're erasing muscle memory for years of like thou shall not share, and so we need to change that to like. But the patient asks for their data, by God, you better give them that data. And it's trying to figure out. So I don't, I haven't met anyone recently who's like I'm not doing that. <laughs> but it's yeah. more like how do I get to where we need to be? So I think it's generally well intended, but that doesn't mean that we don't have work to do. We absolutely do, and I agree with the transparency piece that you mentioned. Like I'm just checking a bunch of forms. Where's everything going? We can certainly make that better. Yeah, and I, I I love this conversation. And you know what, Mari, I'm not I'm not afraid of the people who are struggling, who can't figure out how to share this thing. That's not the people I'm afraid of. The brilliant people, that's who I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that's of the right. people who are really smart, who are writing these things yeah. and saying, "Ah, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll put this phraseology in there, or or we'll we'll aggregate the data in this way. Therefore, we don't have to ask the patient for anything." I am worried about the brilliant people more than I am the people who are struggling. I don't really agree with that. <laughs> Let's, so we've cut these shows down to about 30 minutes, and there's always a lot to talk about with you, but I do want to hit telehealth and cyber. What's going on in the telehealth world? Have we gotten more data? Are we starting to identify areas that are going to be funded moving forward? How's the discussion going? Okay, telehealth feels like tick, tick, boom. <laughs> like, all right, it's what is it, July 13th, July 15th, the PHE ends. So it's like tick, tick, tick. We're waiting for HHS to announce the re-upping, right, the renewal of the PHE for everyone. That's the public health emergency that continues the pandemic authorities 
in place to allow for Medicare billing of telehealth, so on and so forth. So that ends on Friday, this Friday. So we expect, though, everyone keep everything is under control over here, I think. We expect the government to reissue that. I mean, we're probably looking right now, and maybe you're hearing something, Bill, you can comment on this one in a second. Is the uptick in hospitalizations, like what is it, BA5 variant? I don't, we don't foresee the administration ending the PHG just as we head into the fall. That plus they're going to give 60 days notice. They, they promise, we, we pinky promise that we're not going to like pull out the rug underneath you. Also, the physician fee schedule, which just came out in draft form, talks about you know, we are not going to do anything for like 151 days because that was what was in the statute or from earlier this year. There's a lot, there's a lot here to track and it's very complicated. There's a lot of moving pieces. And so it's hard to always keep everyone <laughs> like trying to figure out like what's going on. So the telehealth thing is a lot of moving pieces, but first thing is get PHE extended, right? And then continue to fight for a lengthier extension of the congressional authorities, which were very, very short. They gave like five months or something like that earlier this year after the PAG ended, which again, it hasn't ended yet. So, but should it end, the government has about 151 days to wind it up or wind it down. No, it makes perfect sense. The PHE will not end on Friday. It won't end in the next six months. It, if it ends at the end of the year, I would still be surprised. I mean, this is a, yeah, we have an uptick, but to be honest with you, I get on planes, I fly around, I'm doing stuff. No one's living as if we're still in the middle of a public health emergency. Yeah, the hospitalizations are going up, but the critical, I'm sure there's still deaths from COVID. Don't hear me saying that. I'm sure there still is. And there has been an uptick, but it's not anywhere near where it was before. We're not seeing spikes where hospitals are struggling to maintain the type of care. Now, some are struggling to maintain the type of care, mostly out of staffing shortages. But that's, again, another, a different conversation. I would love to know if the capital is taking that up. The, the clinical staffing shortage would be an interesting conversation. I, I'm shocked that there aren't more conversations like that happening on the Hill. But I, I know that sometimes this stuff takes time to bubble up there and have the hearings. There's already a docket on uh, uh, there and things going on. But yeah, no, it'll continue for a little, it definitely won't end by Friday. And uh, I don't think there's an appetite to have it end anytime this this year, quite frankly, because we're, but here's the thing I would like to have happen. And you tell me if something like this does happen. They have all this data from CMS, all the telehealth data from CMS. And, I, and they've started to look at it. And my guess is they've had more and more opportunity to look at it and to see where telehealth has been effective in the, at least the Medicare population, right? And probably they have data from the commercial side and Medicaid side too, if it's reported on correctly. But at least on the Medicare side, they can look at it and say, you know what, this is actually more effective for us. We're seeing progress. Now we, we saw them create some codes around mental health for, for telehealth. So there was reimbursement for mental health across telehealth because the code that they said, you know what, we're going to, we are going to create some new codes that are available through, through CMS. But I would think there's going to be more of those codes. I would think there's more of that data being looked at and saying, okay, this is effective. This isn't effective. 
which will give us, a, I think, a much more robust conversation when the time comes. It won't just be, hey, telehealth is good. No, telehealth is bad. It'll be, well, let's break this down into a conversation. Telehealth helped us here. It helped us here. It helped us here. We need more data here and here. And quite frankly, it didn't impact a thing on these areas. So we're going to fund this. We're not going to fund this. That's what, that's what I would hope would happen. Do you think that process or a process like that, we'll see that anytime? Yes, I think that's underway right now. There's different entities who've been studying this. It's probably, you've seen like a bunch of peer-reviewed articles on analysis of data. I think there was one like that came out of Michigan recently. I don't know. I think that's the one. But in that funding bill that funded the government for fiscal year 22, which was passed in the law in uh, March of this year, there, I believe there was a report on telehealth that has to be issued. So I could look, we could find that for you and send it you, but there, there is an analysis, you know, like it's, it's interesting at the beginning of the pandemic, we actually, even before the pandemic, we were thinking there should be like some sort of a national office that um, within HHS that should be looking at data across multiple, uh, not just like HHS, but like there's other places where a telehealth is impacted, like a department of agriculture, like take a ecosystem, look at this. And then the pandemic happened shortly after like that bill was introduced. And again, it would have created this office. But the point is, like, it should have been studying all along. And we thought, initially approached lawmakers, we said, like, hey, why don't you, why don't you put in place, like, a two-year funding so we can study this? And, that, and they never did that. They lived and did a long rate. Now we got, like, a five-month thing. So part of this is totally rooted in data, right? And, and I'm sure the Medicare actuary is going to continue to study this. And to your point about mental health, I think there's widespread consensus around mental health. That is, like, one of the strongest use cases. But I think that there's a sufficient amount of uncertainty around the data and around uh, program integrity, aka fraud and abuse by Medicare and some lawmakers, that that has held something back. That combined with the price tag is just, it's holding us back. And But the providers aren't most folks get, I think they think it's probably going to work out in their favor initially, but like that level of uncertainty, how do you plan and you bringing it back to workforce? You need someone to operate all this stuff. One question I have for you, Bill, this issue of workforce and depletion of clinicians and maybe even non-clinicians is like, how can technology best be leveraged to minimize the burden on the clinician? How do we continue to do that? Because we have fewer clinicians, we have a demoralized and depleted workforce, and yet we have amazing technology. What else can we do? That's something we're going to be looking at more closely. Like, how do we leverage that? And smartly, so it's not death by a thousand clicks. Like, what is what do you see as like the foremost technology that just say like the middle middle of the road hospital system? It doesn't have to be the most advanced one. Could be put in a place to make it easier for their clinicians. Yeah, I, I think the conversation that needs to happen there is what level of care can be provided at what level, right? So, what can only a specialist provide? What can a doctor provide? What can a of a RN provide, what can a nurse practitioner provide and whatnot. So I, I think we need to determine that because there's an awful lot of telehealth calls that could be handled by potentially a little lower level of practitioner than it currently is. So if we have a deficit of primary care physicians, it'd be nice if some RNs could jump in there. It'd be nice if some other nurses could could jump in there. And quite frankly, some of the nurses we let go because they would not get vaccinated would be fine in a 
facility doing telehealth calls and that kind of stuff. I think we need to revisit that conversation and look at increasing the number of workers and deploying them in ways that is still safe for the community and safe for, for, for the, for the providers. That's one area. The second is we're having this conversation around automation all the time and the level of automation that's going to be required over the next couple of years. Cause it's not just, it's not just this problem that, that you're discussing here of lack of workers. We also now have financial challenge that's hitting health systems. And so more and more pressure is going to be put because labor is the biggest component of delivering care and more and more pressure is going to be putting there. And to a certain extent, we have to look at automation. We have to look at new ways of delivering care. I don't, I don't fear a downturn in the economy. I never have feared a downturn in the economy because what I found is new things happen during a downturn in the economy. People are forced to rethink the way they've done things. And if things just continue to go the way they, they, they normally go, you have a muscle memory, as we talked about before, of, oh yeah, this is how we deliver care and it's big buildings and it's, we just keep doing it this way. I think this is an opportunity. A downturn in the economy is not a bad thing. It's an opportunity to sit back and go, are we doing things the way that we should? Could we be doing things in a different way? And do we need this much labor to provide a level of care that we've provided before? And perhaps it is partnerships between big tech and healthcare. And I know healthcare kind of rolls their eyes because every time Oracle, I can't believe Oracle came into the industry and made the announcements the way they did, they essentially said, we're going to save healthcare. And I, I just, I'm like, I wish they would stop doing that. Once they stop doing that, though, I hear a lot of health systems that are partnering with Google, partnering with Microsoft, partnering with Apple. I mean, I just talked to a CIO a couple of weeks ago who went out and visited Apple and, and she was extremely excited about the things that they're doing. And I know people who've talked to Amazon and they're partnering with them. There's partnerships because of we're going to be need to look for different models and there's not going to be, there's going to be capabilities we're not going to be able to build ourselves in the health system. A lot of partnerships happen in downturns in the economy when you realize we just can't keep trying to build everything ourselves, which is, we fall into that trap after 15 years of a boom, essentially. So it, it'll be interesting. I wanted to talk to you about cyber, but we are at the end of the show. And you know what? Cyber will always be with us. The next time you're on the show, I'm sure there will be stuff to talk about around cyber. So Mari, welcome back from vacation. And uh, thank you for taking time to spend with me. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Ronald. Thanks so much. What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note, perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show just like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com. They can also subscribe wherever they listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. We want to thank our Newsday sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.